Hello and welcome to Balagan, the podcast that will put things in order for a better understanding of Israeli politics. I am Kobe Cohen, a former political advisor and currently a political columnist and Israel educator. In many of my conversations with my American friends and family, I have noticed that Israeli politics is challenging to understand and quite blurry at times. So I'm here to explain how it works, who are the different players, and why the different players are acting the way they act. So if you're interested in getting what's happening in Israel, that's your place. My podcast will be thorough and brief, with many guests, giving you the best information about Israeli politics and society. It will deal with the structure of the political system in Israel, the different groups of interest, the players' history, along with analysis of what is happening today. I promise to be as objective as possible and guarantee it will always be interesting. So stay tuned. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Balagan. And I'm happy to have my dear friend, Eli Chazan, who's going to continue our conversation about Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, for our listeners who remember, we spoke about Benjamin Netanyahu from the early 80s up until his first term as the Israeli Prime Minister from 1996 to 1999. In 1999, he lost to Ehud Barak. It was actually the second time that we had a direct voting for Prime Minister. And I think that Netanyahu learned some lessons from that term. He was supposed to go to the opposition, but he decided to uh, retire and to take some time off. And I want Eli to tell us a little more not only about the time off, but also what he did in order to go back in power. We will discuss his term as the Minister of Finance under Ariel Sharon in a really hard uh, time, economically-wise, in Israel. And then what he did in order to go back to power, uh, which made him uh, the longest active prime minister in the history of Israel. He was able to pass Ben-Gurion as prime minister. So, Eli... The mic goes to you. What happened in 1999? First thing, why did he lose? Second thing, what did he do? He lost, as I see it, because of, I would say, a few things. First of all, all the old establishment and the media was against him. Don't forget, we don't have in 1999 the social media. Therefore, they could publish a lot of lies, a lot of house truth, and they, in fact, brainwashed a lot of the citizens of the state of Israel. I know that... Yeah, he but he was it. playing with the media. I think that Netanyahu gains a lot of benefit from it. He's a media character, and he knows how to control it, so... No, but don't forget I, that he came into a peak when they could not stand it anymore. Let me give you an example. Do you remember the phrase, the left wing forgot what is to be a Jew? Of course For I remember. Some, of course I remember. remember it clearly. Okay, I remember it as well, because it was the first time that I started to ask questions about Netanyahu, about his attitude. Now, at that time, we didn't have the social media, and the Israeli media published only the first phrase of this, uh, the complete story. The left wing forgot how to be a Jew. And then, you know what was the complete sentence? They think that the Gentiles will protect them. And I'm sorry to tell you, I was very critical in the 1990s. There, I, I truly believe that if you take it in the right context of the 1990s, you should remember the Palestinian Authority, the attack against Jews from the Palestinian Authority, he was completely right. But in 1997, when he said that, I didn't have any social media. I was serving in the Israeli army, and I could 
take you know the information only from the Israeli media who was from the beginning against so in 1999 it was after three years of you know demonizing Netanyahu this is the first reason the second reason if you remember we spoke about the princess those who were thinking that they are going to be the king of Likud at least one of them and they could not send the fact that he is very successful or if you remember some of them Dan Merido was the first one to retire from his position as Minister of Finance. By the way, he objected to an uh, economic step of Netanyahu that today we have a lot of benefits of it, about the dollar against the shekel and things like that. The second one was Ronnie Milo, who of course joined Dan Meridor in the center of power. On the other hand, some MKs, including Benny Begin, and Pat Antonis, almost only the princess who left the party. He decided that Netanyahu is too leftist, because he compromised with the Palestinians in the white plantation agreement, and therefore he's leaving the Likud into, uh, you know, creating the new path. But you can't, I'm sorry for interrupting for a yeah, second. Yeah, yeah, you course. can't uh, deny that there was also a personal aspect to it. Most of the people who left Netanyahu, because you didn't mention, for example, Yitzhak Mordechai, who was actually the first general to join the Likud officially. I mean, many others came after, but I think it was Yitzhak Mordechai who was actually the first general to join to the Likud party as Let a general. Let me ask you, Corbyn, in that regard. Who was the first prime minister to fire his minister of defense? Do you remember? Netanyahu was not the first one in history. No, I think at one point it was the Rashad Lavon uh, yeah, when case. they found out the Egyptian uh, spies. Yeah, the, the, Jews, the, Egyptian the Jews, Jews spies in Egypt in, in Egypt. 1954. 1954, they were captured, and then they were released after the Six Days War in the captive uh, exchange. What I'm trying to tell you is that it is not unique in the history of the state of Israel. There are disagreements between the Prime Minister and his Minister of Defense, but in that case, don't forget, it is not unique to Netanyahu. Now, it is amazing to, to see the phenomenon. Only those who were, you know, in the high rank on the, of the party, Akmur Dehai was number three in the party at that time, David Levy, also left uh, Netanyahu and joined Ehud Barak. It was the same David Levy who had fights with Yitzhak Shamir, with Ariel Sharon, with Netanyahu in the first time. In fact, he created Gesher much before Netanyahu took over completely the Likud party. All those who left the party wanted to be number one. You cannot ignore that this fight. Yes they and no. I mean, David Levy also got it hard from Netanyahu in 1992 when uh, they were uh, running for replacing uh, Yitzhak Shamir. Yeah, and uh, Netanyahu accused him of getting the famous uh, tape cassette of uh, <laughs> him uh, having an affair. And now, by the way, many people are saying that it was something that Netanyahu came up with in order to bring a good story to the media and be with the heads up, you know, to be a step ahead. You tend to forget that this is the same David Le who created Gesher in 1996. And when Netanyahu promised him to be number two of the party, and be a minister of foreign affairs, he rejoined Likud. I mean, he created Gesher as part of Likud, as part of the faction in the election of 1996. This is the same David Levy, by the way. He did not have a fight only with Netanyahu. He had fights with Begin, with Sharon, with Bibi as well, and with Ehud Barak. Then he defected from Ehud Barak. So this is a kind of a pattern of behavior. No, yeah, but good. also Netanyahu has a pattern of not keeping, you know, if we'll go back to the last elections, I remember that he said that Nir Barkat is going to be the next uh, Minister of Finance in Israel. Yeah, he and said so, while everyone knows that he means if he will get 61 seats 
to the right block. We could not have it. I actually saw that uh, if he's telling him that, it means he's not going to be minister. So <laughs> I know that, frankly, he has this kind of intention. I want to remind you that before the election of 2015, and I promised that Moshe Kachlon will be the finance minister. And it happened as long as we had, at this time, six, seven seats in the right block. So in the end, you can listen to a lot of promises of Netanyahu, but reality don't allow him to fulfill it. Now that's politics. Kobe, I'm not going to be hypocrite. Netanyahu is a politician, a very foxy one. He knows how to control the party. He knows how to control yeah, politicians. And by the way, he's no different than Menachem Begin. Menachem Begin used to keep his status for so many years. He used to kick any objection to him inside the party, including Ben Zion Netanyahu, when we spoke about it. So why Netanyahu is illegit and Menachem Begin is legit? I didn't say illegit. I was just mentioning. And by the way, you just brought up a good point when you said that Netanyahu is the most skilled politician in Israel. But he also learned some lessons because I think one of his backlashes was that he did the Y Treaty, the Y Accords, as a part of the Oslo Accords. And the right wing actually turned against him. In the election of 1999. Yeah, yeah, 1999. So it's also a part of thing, and I think he learned a lesson from that, not to go against your base. I that would was, say that that's a good lesson that he learned. That um, was the third reason that I wanted to elaborate. He lost his base, and that was the lesson he used after that. That was the third lesson, or the third reason why he lost the election in 1999. He retires, quits, uh, and he left Likud, or at least to be the leader of Likud. From 1999 until uh, 2006, when Ariel Sharon created Kedima, no one believed that Ariel Sharon, who took over the party, was elected in the primaries of 1999. After no, Netanyahu retired. Yeah, yeah, in 1999, after he lost, he decided to retire, to spend from the Knesset. No one believed that Ariel Sharon will go on as a leader of the party. No one believed that he will be elected to be prime minister right. in this party. We have to remind to our listeners. That Ariel Sharon could not act as Minister of Defense, by the way, because he was accused by the Kahan Committee of being responsible to the massacre of Sabra and Shatila. And a lot of leftists, because of what happened in Lebanon, I guess this is your friend, did not want to vote for him because of what happened in the Le- first Lebanese in war. In the first Lebanese war, look, eventually we both know that him, along with Raful, really did not say the truth. To the government and to begging but I think what happened in Israel was that Ariel Sharon for many years was what we'll call a leaper in Israel a leaper politicians Metzora, which right. means that nobody ever had a thought even in the right wing and I think that's what happened with Bibi also I mean Netanyahu thought that Sharon will be there as the head of opposition for exactly. a couple of years and then he can come back and he didn't assume that Sharon will become so popular you're completely right and I want to about it. This is why you can understand Netanyahu's attitude to prevent any threat to his leadership. Because on the end, there are politicians. By the way, he's no different than any other politician in the Israeli political world that I know. If you remember, Tzipi Livni did not let Chalmopat to replace him. In the end, Shiloh. Not to mention, you know, Bougie Herzog and before that, Shelly Ekimovic. They try to defend themselves from any threat. And well, the, the Labour Party is a tragedy as itself. The Labour Party may rest in peace, as uh, we can say. <laughs> What I wanted to emphasize is that you can say one thing about Netanyahu, but although other politicians behave in the same behavior, 
you will accuse Netanyahu of specific uh, behavior. He acts as like any other current politician that I know. Look what's happened in Merit. No one can you know uh, what Nitan Horowitz is trying to do is to prevent any replacement. Tamar Zandberg did the same. They want to preserve themselves. But when Netanyahu is doing it, you have a lot of criticism. I think that Netanyahu, unlike others, he is willing to take the extra mile to eliminate the opposition. Of course. That's why I'm saying he has the killer instinct, which uh, other politicians lack of. You know, Ben-Gurion had a killer instinct. I want a politician like that. Israel is a very complicated state to manage. And you must have someone like him. By the way, as much as you had David Ben-Gurion, this is how it works. And by the way, there is no coincidence that those are the two politicians who succeeded more than the others. Is that the acting prime ministers. So... What does Netanyahu do in that time when he is on his time off, when he is on the break? You know, there are a lot of questions about his fortune. How come he became a very rich politician? In fact, he did most of his fortune at that time, between 1999 and 2002. In 2002, he came back to be Minister of Foreign Affairs. In 1999, he became advisor to a lot of Israeli high companies, and he used to give a lot of lectures. I mean, the urban legend tells that he used to get $100,000 to each lecture. Right. And in fact, yeah, he, he's doing business at that time, from 1999 to 2002. Now, this is one of the things that you can think about. Netanyahu could do a fortune outside, but in his point of view, the state of Israel is very important. Of course, he has his ego and things like that, but he decided to come back in 2002 to be the Minister of Foreign Affairs after the Labour Party leaving the government, to be the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ariel Sharon. At that time, we could have only 19 seats. Now, before that, I want to come back to the election of 2001. I would like to remind to our listeners that Ehud Barak was elected as Prime Minister in 1999. Yes. He failed completely. You may agree with me, although you supported him as well. He failed completely in 2001. We are going into what we call a special election only for the Prime Ministership. Nereel Sharon has won, surprisingly or not. Yeah, at that time, just to remind our listeners, there was a voting with two votes. Um, yes, in 1999, we voted in two votes for the party and for, for the party. For the party on one hand and for the prime minister on the other hand. And, and that was the only time in 2001 that it was a special election just for the prime minister, which meant, by the way, The, the Likud had only 17 seats, if 19, I remember, 19, 19 seats, and it was really hard to form a coalition at and, that time. And, and it has a direct connection to Netanyahu, because a lot of Likudniks expected Netanyahu to come back, and he said, I will go back, only if we will have complete election, even for the Knesset and for the prime ministership, because I cannot govern with 19 seats. He's less than 20% of the Knesset the hold of the Knesset, and therefore I don't want to do it. He did not come back, although the Knesset uh, changed the law specifically for him, because people have to remember... It, it wasn't run. just specifically for him. People thought that the system failed. I mean, it was some sort no, but of a weird... Copy. I tell you what I mean. He was not, at that time, an acting MK. And according right. to the law of that time, if you are not an acting MK, you cannot run to the prime ministership. That's right. what I mean. Netanyahu right. was the only... You know, a reasonable candidate for Likud to run at that time. He decided not to do it. Surprisingly, Ariel Sharon has won, and therefore Netanyahu needed to wait. And then in 2002, when Labour Party left the government, it was a unity government 
until 2002, before the election of 2003. Netanyahu came back to the political world as a minister of foreign affairs of Ariel Sharon. And in fact, that was a very important key point because he came back to the political world, not as a prime minister. In 2003, after Sharon went the election, he wanted to make Netanyahu a very problematic politician, and he decided to appoint him as a minister of finance. Now, I want to remind the circumstances. At that time, Israel was in a mess, in an economic mess. It was a disaster. And many people thought that every acting minister of finance will fail. There is no other possibility. And uh, Sharon didn't like Netanyahu. In fact, he hated him. And he wanted him to fail. And then he said, I will appoint him as minister of finance. If he will be successful, I will say, this is my success. Yeah. Not For Sharon, it was a win-win situation because exactly. if Netanyahu fails, then he will join. The Minister of Finance, let's be honest, is a great position in Israel. I don't think that besides of Netanyahu, there was any successful Minister of Finance who was able to continue with his political uh, career. I no, think no, that it's some sort of a graveyard for politicians. Yeah, but I'm but saying in overall, most of the ministers of finance... And it's not because of them, it's because of the position itself. It's a grateful exactly. position because you are the bad person of the government. You are the one who's supposed to say, I don't have the money for it. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, that's what they be done at that time. It yeah, the and, budget and completely. We're, we're going to talk about it in a second because I want you to go back to Sharon because you said it correctly. And for Sharon, it was a win-win situation. And for Netanyahu, it was a really complicated situation. Because and if again, he's going to say no, then he's turning his back against the country. And, you know, Sharon was making it like, listen, we need you as the Minister of Finance. You can do the reforms. Exactly. Exactly. Now, I want to emphasize another phenomenon. When Netanyahu is doing the same actions like Sharon, Netanyahu is illegit. I mean, he's a bad politician. How come he did it? But this is the same pattern of behavior of any prime minister in the last generation. If you are successful, this is my success. And if you fail, this is your failure. Netanyahu is not different than any other minister in the last generation in that regard. And let's speak about his term as, the, as Minister of Finance, because that was the years when I loved him the much. When he cut the budget, he saved the economy. He sent a lot of ultra-religious and Arab citizens to work. You know, your friend Amir Peretz said that Netanyahu is going to abolish or to eliminate the Israeli economy, but it took only one year and a half to change the economy from a big deficit into a big growth. And by the way, it was the starting point when the GDP of Israel started to uh, go up more than that. So I want to tell an anecdote, a very interesting one. Two politicians objected to Netanyahu in a very extreme way, more than the others. The one was Amir Peretz, who was the head of the union at that time. And the second one was Ehud Olmert, the rival of Netanyahu, inside Likud, almost every step, not all the steps that Netanyahu used to do. Olmert and Amir Peretz used to dominate. Why I'm saying so? Because it's so funny. Because when Netanyahu changed the economy, the, the state gets more money from taxes and income. And it was, in fact, the budget to finance the second Lebanese war, who was managed by the same Ehud Olmert and the same Amir Peretz. They took the income from Netanyahu's plan, the economic plan, in order to fund the second Lebanese war. Well, it's more complicated than that. But Netanyahu did 
take some extreme measures. And by that, yes, they were able to shift the economy in Israel. Israel was in an economic crisis, and they were able to shift things. But most of the critics around Netanyahu was about the five members of uh, Jabotinsky, because one of the things that he did in order to shrink the government's expenses, he cut off with the allowances that were given to families with a lot of kids, It was called the Mishpachot Bruchot Yeladim. Yeah. And a lot of people said, we won't have food, we won't have the money, we won't be able to feed our kids. Now, the five members of Jabotinsky, and I'm just saying it for the audience to know, Zev Jabotinsky was not considered to be a socialist, but if you look at it in a way, those are actually socialist, I would say, uh, infrastructure. Mazon, I will add to what you're going to say, I will add something later that will show that you're not completely right. מזון, מעון, מלבוש, מורה ומרפא. And in English it's food, housing, clothing, education and health. Those are the five things that the government need to support the people with. That's the agreement as Jabotinsky saw it between the state and the citizen. Yeah, but in the same way, Jabotinsky spoke about free market entrepreneurship. He used to encourage it. By the way, he used to be an agent of an uh, insurance company as well. So you are completely right, by the way. Uh, that's what we said in 2004 and 2005, that the state already gave the minimum to people. For instance, Netanyahu did not cancel the benefit payment completely. He just reduced it because he said we have no money to keep. And he said that right now we have the minimum according to the situation. When we will get more, and by the way, that's what he did as a prime minister since 2009. Because if you look at the benefits, or the payments of the benefits, much more. Now, it's so ironic. Yeah, afterwards, other... when he wanted to get the ultra-Orthodox back. Of course, you have so... an explanation for that. But I'm showing you I... that in the end, he fulfilled his promise. He said, when the country will have money, I will be able to give more. And that's exactly what he did. Netanyahu did not way... lie about it. Did he get Sharon's support for all of his economic steps? Yeah, and this is another thing that we have to speak about. At that time, we have a very homogeneous coalition with free marketeer liberals such as Shinui, some right-wing parties, and we could, of course. But, Kobe, we have to remember, I mean, we live at the same time, you know, as a student, but you have to remember the context. I mean, it was a, really a disaster. And I truly believe that every step that he could or could do, he would get the support of Sharon because, frankly speaking, he could not, you know, work otherwise. He must do it at that time. No, of end. course, but in order to be uh, the nice guy, Sharon could have said, and I'll give him credit for that, that even though he threw him to the wolves as, you know, because he already put him as the Minister of Finance, he did back him up with what he did, even though he heard... What would well, you expect Sharon? But also I'll say Sharon was able to do that because he had Shinui as coalition members oh, and not liberal, the ultra-Orthodox yeah. who were the opposition at that time because yeah. Netanyahu also in 2013, and we're going to talk about it later, also put preferred Lapid's son. Shinui was led by Tommy Lapid, who was a journalist in Israel, and they were the big surprise of the election at that time. They got 15 seats. The next election, they went to six seats, and then they disappeared. No, no, in, in, in 1999, they get six. In 2003, 15. 
Right. In 2006, they completely disappeared. They completely, uh, yeah. And then in 2013, his son, Yair Lapid, is coming up with a different centric party Allegedly. called Yeshatid, and it belongs to a different story that we'll speak about it later on. But that's the only reason I think that Sharon backed him up. It's because they didn't have the ultra-Orthodox in the coalition at that time. And yeah, and another lesson to Netanyahu, we understood, I mean, in 2006, it was a complete defeat for Likud, the lowest result in the history of the party ever, only 12 seats. And one of the reasons that we were punished by the people, you cut the budget and therefore we will not vote for you. But also uh, Sharon uh, split the Likud and the Labour and, and uh, Kadima. formed Kadima. Yeah, not only that, but I wanted to give you the economic point of view. It's not only that. Sharon was very popular. It was after the disengagement in 2005 or right. today. We look at it retrospectively with a lot of criticism. But at that time, we must be frank and true. Uh, you can now, admit yeah. that I was against it in, in real time. But that's for a different conversation. Yeah, but Sharon was very popular. He created Kadima, although he goes into a coma, but his successor, Old Olmert, and you see, this is another thing. If you look at the polls, Sharon gets, when he established Kadima, more than 40 seats. More than 40 seats, yes. I remember one poll with 48 seats. 46 or 40, yeah, 48. I remember 48. I think the highest was 48. And yeah, and when Ehud Olmert succeeded as the leader of Kadima, in the end, when he ran to the election of 2006, we have to remind our listeners that Sharon went into a coma, he did not run in 2006. Ehud Olmert has become the leader of the Kadima. The leader-elect of Kadima. Of Kadima, and then he gets only 29, less than we expected. But in any case, Netanyahu at that time was, I would say, in a different position. I mean, Likud gets only 12 seats. Is under the threat of a lot of politicians inside the Kud. He won the primaries of 2005 and the beginning of 2006. And then he rebuilt the Kud from the beginning. Only with 12, 12 seats in the Knesset, he creates a very effective opposition to the Olmert, Kadima, and Labour. And we were very lucky enough, unfortunately or not fortunately, that Olmert managed the second Lebanese war in a very lame way. And Netanyahu used it in a democracy, and this is another thing that I want to tell you. Usually, you would expect us to be a very gentle opposition. But no, the new Likud is not gentleman opposition. Not at all. We want to get victory. We want to win in the election. And Netanyahu is conducting, I would say, a very sophisticated opposition. Uses the hatred of people against El Olmert because of the Second Lebanese War. In fact, this is a tool in order go into an early election, 2009 instead of 2010. More than that, because Kadima was created from different groups inside the Israeli political system, rightist, leftist, centrist, extreme rightist, extreme leftist. It was a shakshuka party. Exactly. It was a kind of a balagan. And this is another thing. This is part of my criticism yeah. against blue and white. You cannot yeah, it's the same party. thing. In the end, it explodes because it cannot run together. That's exactly what happened to Kadima. For instance, take El- Zev Elkin. Zev Elkin is a minister of Likud today. He used to act against Kadima from inside. Yes. And Netanyahu understood it. He used to use Zev Elkin inside Kadima. And he was very lucky. On the other hand, he was a very no-brash politician in order to understand it and to use manipulations in order to take Kadima down. 
The outcome was the election of 2009. Now, we were lucky enough because Olmer himself was accused of corruption. The peak of his popularity was 3% in the polls. He was a failed prime minister. And then it wasn't uses. that he's a failed prime minister. He was an unpopular prime minister. Yeah, even he admitted it in 2008. And, and that's yeah. the big difference between him and Netanyahu, because Netanyahu is being accused of corruption also, but he still has the back of one-third of the people who voted for the Likud. Yeah, you're right. One-third. So it's don't like, forget. Un- Net- I mean, if Netanyahu had the same situation like Olmert, I doubt if Netanyahu would be able to stay in power. You tend to forget. I tell you one thing that you have to remember. So a lot of Likudniks, including like me, Netanyahu is under persecution. This is how we see it. I mean, Netanyahu is a symbol. When they persecute him, they persecute us. Since 1997, Netanyahu was under 22 accusations, investigations, and things like that. 19 of them ended up with nothing. And then you are starting to ask yourself, how come? I mean, 19 times. And even when you look in these, the last three cases, it's very problematic. There are a lot of question marks about, you know, the allegations against Netanyahu. And think about, I would say, the block of Netanyahu. There is a lot of support. And let me tell you something and frankly. Netanyahu is enjoying from the behavior of the left of Israel. Of course. Hypocrisy. Uh, or it's not only hypocrisy. You know, lack of Amud Shidra. I forgot how you say Amud Shidra. <laughs> lack of spine <laughs> and no, ideology. It's not only that. I mean, but the left wing in Israel, you know, preaching some values. And when it goes to him, he violated him. And it worked for Netanyahu. I disagree on that. But that's not the point of our conversation about Netanyahu. But I do want to offer one more thing, by the way. Ulmert was outside of the Likud at that time. And the Likud has two things that I think that is in its DNA. First thing, that you are constantly in the opposition. I mean, even when you are the government, and there are plenty of examples even from recent years, that you can be a minister from the Likud, okay? And you will serve in the government, but you will still go and protest with people who are protesting against the... I can explain to you why. Because we have the deep state. We do not govern the state of Israel. Ah, that's a... We have the bureaucrats. We have the bureaucrats who's trying to create barriers for us. I'm talking about policy that uh, you're saying one thing and doing the other. I'm not talking about the deep state. That's a different conversation also. But I'm saying in overall, you guys have the DNA of being the opposition all the time. That's why you are always fighting, even when you are in power. It's not related to the bureaucracy and to, you and know... by the way, this is a difference from the Likud of Menachem Begi to Likud of today. The Likud of Menachem Begi was very gentleman with a lot of politeness. And we're not polite anymore. We have nothing to do with being polite anymore. That's politics. But it's not just about being polite. It's about being mamlachti, as we say in Hebrew. From the beginning, you tend to forget there is no mamlachtiut anymore. This is a political fight between right and left about the hegemony, about ideology, about who is going to govern the state. And I think that's the difference between Netanyahu and Begin. In one point, Netanyahu understood that this is a fight between right and left. And by the way, this is the turning point of Likud. You ask me how Likud was changed? That is the turning point. That today we have more and more and more Likudists who understand that in fact we are in a political, and I emphasize, not in a war, but in a political war. We're more like Trump. We used to be like, you know, Ronald Reagan or someone like that. And I truly believe that this state of mind is one of the secrets of Netanyahu. 
he was able to convince us that in the end, it always used to be a kind of a political war, and you must fight in order to get power. Menachem Begin did not understand it. That's the difference. I, I think he understood it, but it was a different situation. Uh, yeah, might be. And he also had a different uh, set of values. No doubt about it. But so, don't forget, it was a completely different period. Even the left wing in Israel at that time had a different set of values. So 2006, Netanyahu is leading the Likud with only 12 mandates. But he's doing a really good work as the head of opposition. And then, you know, comes the election against C.P. Livni. And what's happening there? It was very interesting because the citizens of Israel learned a new political lesson. In the end of the election, Kadima had 28 seats and Likud 27 seats. And then, you know, C.P. Livni declared, I won. Three hours later, or something like that, Netanyahu said, I won. We can explain to the listeners about the system in Israel. According to the law, you win if you get more than 61 when you create a coalition. It's true that Tzipi Livni gets 28 and it's more than 27, no doubt about it. It's usually the leader of the biggest party, but eventually it's the person who gets more support. Recommendations, more recommendations to the president. Exactly. So the president gives the mandate to form the government to the person who's able to show that he can form a coalition. Exactly. And that's exactly what's happened in 2008. A lot of citizens in Israel could not understand how come Kadima gets 28 seats, he could get 27, and Netanyahu is the prime minister. So the system is very simple, and we want to make it clear. When Tzipi Livni said, I have 28, it's more than 27, she was completely in a kind of I would say illusion. Why? Because in the end, only 28 of her party members recommended to the president that she will form a government. Labour Party decided to get 10. Meretz decided not to support him. Of course, the Arab MK decided not to support Sipilivni because of the creation of the IDF in Gaza previously in that year. And Netanyahu's recommendation of 65 against the 28th of June. We told her, you're right, 28 is more than 27, but 65... It's far more than 28. But the one who shifted it was actually Shas, because the Labour Party and Meretz would have gone with Tzipi Livni. If she had Shas, it could have turned the numbers. But Shas under Eli Ishai... I completely disagree. I truly believe that Ehud Barak hated Tzipi Livni very much. Oh, of course, but regardless, I don't think he would have supported Netanyahu if Livni had a chance. But he knew that she doesn't really have a chance. And now I can tell you that behind the scenes, before the election of 2009, he did a lot of efforts in order to take down the government. He was quite happy when Tzipi Livni could not establish a government after she said it to And This is one of the things that I cannot understand about the Israeli left. How come you count on Ehud Barak? You know, I see the comments in the social media in Israel about him, and I have a lot of questions. I mean, sorry, he goes against the left bloc many times. In fact, he eliminated the dream of peace, and still he gets a support. Ah, uh, but everybody has a short-term memory, by the way. It's not unique just to Israelis or to the Israeli left, but I would say that. I think that uh, Ehud Barak these days has a, one of the clearer voices as an opposition, so-called, but he still doesn't get elected. And you know that I'm a big fan of Barak in overall, but I don't want to see him back in politics, for example, because okay. I think he was a failed politician. And I really think that as a strategic 
planner and there's somebody who can uh, give you um, a description of what's going on. He's one of the best analytic persons that you have. But most people, I don't think that in the left, they see him as the future of the left in Israel. Kobe, you should be involved more in the social media in Israel in order to understand. I see it. But once again, if he was so big, then Meretz uh, would have got more votes in 2019 when he formed the unity with the... Yeah, it was 19. It was September 19 when he formed the unity with Meretz and with uh, Stav Shafir. Yeah. And they didn't. So it yeah, shows yeah, you yeah. that eventually, when you're talking about his power, I think you're giving him too much credit in public Might opinion. Be. Might be. Anyhow, let's go back to 2009 in order to understand it. In 2009, Netanyahu understands the importance of the base, the importance of the right block. And I've been there as the assistant to the chairman of the Kud faction. Although Eud Barak decided to join his coalition, as a defense minister. I mean, Netanyahu wanted to create a government without Barak, and then Barak joined him. Please do remember that Netanyahu remembered himself. In 2009, the implications of having a government only based on the right block. He cannot count on them anymore. This is why he decided to bring Labour Party. In return, Barak asked not only being a defense minister, he wants five ministers only to 13 MKs. By the way, it was of the reasons why we had a big government, 30 ministers, because of Eud Barak and uh, Yvette Lieberman. Lieberman had 15 seats. He asked for five ministers. And then we had no other choice but form the second biggest government in the state of Israel after the current government of 34 ministers. But in any case, this is one thing. We have to remember it was after the economic crisis of 2008 and it was after the election of Barack Obama. When uh, Obama encouraged the two-state solution, and Netanyahu was against it. And Netanyahu needed to manipulate or to act or to manage according to this reality. Okay, so we're going to take a break here, and we're going to have another uh, Netanyahu yeah, episode. Oh my show. God, it's going to be like a trilogy, <laughs> almost like the Godfather. <laughs> More than we expected, but that's Netanyahu. We can speak about Well, him. it's a long era. We got to admit that it is a long era. period of time when you're talking about a uh, historical and political time you know uh, there is a reason why Netanyahu is still in power but we will continue to discuss it and we're going to have to stop now because it's way way longer than we can push into one episode so it was up to 2009 okay and we yeah. will come back again with another episode soon talking about Netanyahu from 2009 We'll see if it's going to be until 2015 or it's going to be until these days. Maybe we'll do it until 2019 and then we'll talk about the last year and what's happening in the last year. But yeah, I think uh, you gave us a great insight here and it's always uh, great to debate with you and to disagree Likewise. on things. <laughs> Likewise. And by the way, this is part of the event democracy that we can argue almost about. And, and by the way, this is one of the secrets Why the Israeli society is so successful? Because we keep arguing all the time. Give more ideas, bring more ideas and more ideas. And the implications are very good. Well, we'll continue to discuss it later on. I want to thank you and I want to thank our listeners. And we'll be back with you again in the next episode. Thank you for joining us today. Music
I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now and have a great day.